Good morning, church. Somebody asked on the way in, is it okay to bring coffee into the church? Yeah. <laughs> it was a week and a half ago, I was sitting on an island in the middle of the Kawarthas, and the whole time I was thinking I would much rather be here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> One of the joys of going away, of course, is coming back. And to come back in the middle of a season that is so frenetic with excitement and new starts and new beginnings, all the things that Nathan just prayed for, uh, acorns and promised land and alpha, the big event on the 21st, anniversary on the 22nd, uh, all of that we want to be able to wrap up in a compelling vision for why it is we do what it is that we do. Uh, the sense that we are more than just a combination of a lot of activities and a lot of people, but we are moving direct together in, in the same direction for a common purpose. And so we begin every season with a couple of vision weekends, and this is the first of two vision weekends. And I want to start by placing us within the context that you and I both know so well within the GTA, particularly this side of the GTA, you could make the argument, and it would be a compelling one, that the GTA is flourishing like few places in the world have in the course of human history. When you think about innovation and creativity and entrepreneurial leadership, world-class medical facilities, premier educational centers, it's all here. The GTA is flourishing financially. I know there was a little blip in the market not too long ago, but we are sitting in the midst of the greatest explosion of financial wealth in human history. The average household income in the GTA is now $91,089. There are more billionaires in the GTA than anywhere else in the country. Maybe you're sitting next to one right now. So look at them, smile, give them your cutest face. We're flourishing educationally in, in amazing ways. The University of Toronto, McMaster, Sheridan College, the Rotman School, premier world-class centers. The largest theological school in the country is right here in the GTA. Even athletically, finally, at last, the GTA is flourishing. The Raptors are NBA champions. We have the number one tennis player in the world the Blue Jays are on a tear, and the Maple... Well, can't have everything. Yeah, yeah, we'll pray over the Maple Leafs. Yeah. Another area, though. Would you say that the GTA is flourishing spiritually? Hmm. That's another issue, isn't it? In so many ways, it feels like we live in magic town. But when it comes to what matters most, when it comes to spiritual vitality and, and church affiliation, we know that we are swimming in the shallow end. The vast majority of people who live in the GTA are not a part of any faith community. They don't know God. And you see the spiritual vitality of our city just languishing in so many ways. And what we're experiencing, the challenges in life, so much of that is fallout. You see it in families and marriages that are that are ending, that are plummeting into divorce, and children who live with unbelievable pressure and anxiety and depression. You see it in this culture of performance and, and materialism that ends up with all kinds of people living these isolated, 
segregated lives, plagued with addiction and mental health issues. You see it in the lives of people who live off in the shadows, people who are marginalized, people who aren't experiencing any of that wonderful flourishing that we were just laughing about. You see it in economic brokenness. This is the other side of life in Mississauga. 15% of all of our families living at or below the poverty line. There were 95,000 visits to community food banks just in Mississauga last year. You see it in relational brokenness. 12,000 kids living in foster care. 41% of marriages ending in divorce. Now, you'd think that at least in this one area, because this is such an affluent part of the world, that we'd be leading the world in generosity. Not so much. Actually, it turns out when it comes to charitable giving, the GTA is not that charitable. We are outstripped vastly by remote, isolated, rural areas of the country where the burden they carry for the needs of others is just that much weightier and more significant than ours. If you wanted to describe us, you would have to say, it's not as flattering as we want it to be, that what we are is rich, overeducated, influential, miserly pagans. What a great time to be the church, though, right? (laughs) What a great place to be the church, And so what I want to do is to dream with you a little bit this weekend and next weekend. What if Jesus were to start moving in the GTA like Jesus has never moved before? What if thousands of people found themselves coming to Christ as people have by the millions across the centuries and across the continents? What if if thousands of people's lives and sins were confessed and forgiven and healed? What if marriages instead of winding up in a courtroom, started to be healed and reconciled? What if God were to to turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and children towards their parents? What if all those barriers that we see on the news again and again that are separating us started to come down? What if people who had so many resources in their life began to use them to elevate their generosity instead of just to elevate their lifestyle? In fact, What if God is bringing all of this opportunity, all of this diversity, and all of this wealth and education and innovation to us here in the GTA, not so we could be rich, but so that the name of Jesus could be great? What if that's what God is up to around here? What I'd like to do this morning is to talk about what what might be called the great why. Why we exist at a church. The great why of your life. Why are you here on this planet as a human being? And I want to do that by looking at a passage in the Bible. If you're a Bible person, you've read this before, no doubt. It's at the very end of Jesus' life. It's in the Gospel of Matthew in the final chapter. I'm going to read it for you, and uh, I'm going to change one word. For those of you who are Bible geeks, I'm going to ask you to try and spot it. This, this is after Jesus had been crucified and then resurrected. Matthew 28, verse 16. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but still some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make Christians of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Anybody pick up the word? Christians. Go make Christians of everyone, Jesus said. But he didn't, did he? Go make disciples. And this is, this is really, really important. Because I expect that most people are under the impression that the mission of the church is to go make Christians. And some folks have this idea that the hidden goal of the church is numerical superiority. We want to have more people calling themselves Christians than any other religion. More of us than there are of them. And when it looks like there's more of them than there are of us, we're losing because religion, after all, is a war of numbers. But what if it's not? It leads to this really interesting question. How is it that we understand that word? What does it mean to be a Christian? How would you define it? If you were to ask the average unchurched person in the GTA what they thought of when they heard the word Christian, how they would define it, what do you think they would say? It was that fascinating question that shaped a research study that was done by a couple of guys, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. And this is the paraphrase of their finding. What is it that you think of when you heard the word Christian? They think of moralistic, homophobic, anti-science, judgmental bigots who don't believe in dinosaurs, but who do believe that they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the idea that everyone else is going to hell. That's why the word Christian is a complicated word to use in the GTA. Because you want to say, I'm not one of those. I don't want to be affiliated with that camp if that's what people understand that the name means. If you grew up in the church, you might have grown up in a place where where you sort of thought that the only people who were getting into heaven were people who believed what you believed, and that might have been defined quite narrowly so that you thought it's only people within your group that fit. I grew up in a Baptist church, right? We kind of figured that there would be some non-Baptist people in heaven because God is lenient after all, right? But they'd be there because God is lenient and because we were right, of course. So there'd be some Lutherans represented off in their corner by Martin Luther. And there'd be some Wesleyans represented over there by by John Wesley. And some Catholics and the Pope is there with them. And then there'd be lots of Baptists in heaven with Jesus, right? And, And that's how it all kind of played out. What does the word Christian mean for us? How does the Bible define the word Christian? Here's where it gets really interesting. It turns out that the word Christian hardly ever appears in the Bible. Only three times. And it's never defined. It turns out it's actually a made-up word. It's a word that was made up by people outside the church to describe what they saw inside. And it was actually kind of an insult when it was first used. Originally, the church was all Jewish. And then over time, more and more people from different backgrounds, cultural and ethnic and religious, started coming inside. And they had to find some way of describing them. So they hurled this slanderous word at them. Oh, you Christians, you little Christs. They made up the word. Several centuries later, as a way of, I don't know, responding, Christians made up a word to describe people who were outside of the church. They called them pagans. So you've got Christians, pagans, Both words to describe who's in and who's out. Neither one intended to be terribly flattering. 
But it turns out, again, the Bible never actually defines the word Christian, and it never really talks about the importance of becoming a Christian. I know it sounds kind of weird, but look it up. Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus was, in fact, a lifelong Jew. The word Christian, as we said, mentioned only three times in the Bible, never defined. But the word that is used 269 times, just in the New Testament, is the word disciple. In other words, the Bible is a book by disciples, about disciples, for disciples. Jesus didn't come and call together 12 Christians to follow him. He called 12 disciples. He didn't come to start a new religion, a thing called Christianity. He came to reform religion. He came to love the human race in a way that no religion, not even Christianity, can ever box in. And when he sent his followers out, he didn't say, go create more Christians. He said, go invite people to be my disciples. So, of course, the great question is why? What's the big deal about being a disciple? See, that's, that's what we do as a church. If you're looking for our purpose, there it is. We're in the disciple-making business. That's what we're going to talk about. There was a guy, maybe you've run across him. His name, his name was uh, Simon Sinek. Some of you may know him. He did a TED Talk a few years ago. went really viral. It, uh, uh, it caught the attention of, of most of the Western world. He says that you should always start with the why. He talked about a golden circle. He says for any cause, for any movement, for any company, there will be a what. What is it that you do? Uh, Well, we make computers. We make cars. That's our what. And then there's a how. How is it that we do that? Well, we have a factory line. We have production. We have supply chain management. We have distribution. There's a how. But he says the real magic is in the why, knowing why it is that we exist. Why does our cause exist at all? Why do we make cars or computers? As a church, our what is to make disciples. We exist to make disciples. We believe that discipleship is the greatest opportunity that's ever offered to a human being. The gospel itself is the opportunity to become a disciple of Jesus. But why? Why is that such a great thing? Here's the main thing I want to say in the message. The main thing that I hope all of us take away, this is a line from Dallas Willard. I'm going to say it, then I'm going to get you to say it with me out loud. There is no problem, this is what Willard says, there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Say that with me. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot cannot solve. The reason the offer of discipleship to Christ matters more than anything else is that there is no problem in human life that discipleship to Jesus cannot solve. You think about the things that have plagued us. Greed, sexual assault, fear, violence, homelessness, divorce, racism, neglect, bitterness, pollution, rejection, death. The list just goes on and on. But whatever it is, see, this is terribly important. You won't hear this much outside the gathering of Jesus' followers. 
human problems will not be solved only by human means. Human problems will not be solved only by human nature because it turns out human nature is part of the problem. There are always going to be problems that technology cannot solve. There will be problems that innovation cannot address. There will be problems that education will not solve, that wealth will not solve, that religion will not solve. But there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus will not solve. That includes the forgiveness of guilt and sin and brokenness as a free gift of grace. It includes the great problem that we have with death itself. The promise that that life goes on in a way that we can scarcely imagine. It includes all the problems that we face as human beings on earth. Discipleship to Jesus is the greatest offer that a human being has ever been given. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Jesus had nothing whatsoever to say about becoming a Christian. But he had a whole lot to say about being a disciple. He said this, for example, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me and make it a daily affair. Another way of saying this, of describing what it means to be be a disciple, again, another expression by Dallas Willard, he put it this way, a disciple is anyone whose ultimate goal is to live as Jesus would live if he were in their place. A disciple is anyone whose ultimate goal is to live as Jesus would live if he were there in their place. I want to live my life the way Jesus would live it if he were me. And I believe that he's going to help me as I try and do that. It's why anybody can be a disciple. I love the passage that we read from Matthew 28. Read it closely, especially the preamble before Jesus speaks. Even after the resurrection, some of the disciples still were plagued with doubt. And even these doubting disciples, to them Jesus said, it's okay. Come, continue to follow me on the journey of discipleship because it's not about the power, the skills, the knowledge of the apprentice. It's about the mastery and the power of the master. An apprentice is just someone who says, I'm going to, be a, make, I'm going to make a commitment to be here with the master of this craft so that I can learn from him and learn to be like him. That's all an apprentice is. An apprentice is someone who says, I bind myself to a master of the craft until I learn the craft as well as they did. Some of you have apprenticed in, in, as an electrician or as a plumber or in the trades. I bind myself to the master until I learn the craft. In the case of Jesus, the craft is life. And I want to tell you that I believe the opportunity to apprentice yourself to Jesus is the greatest opportunity that will be extended to anyone. And you don't have to be any good at it. Not at the beginning. This this is what we're about as a church. Our what is that we make disciples. We introduce people to this life of discipleship, of, of being with Jesus. We hope to unleash the power of Jesus in people's lives. We want to unleash the power of Jesus in their lives. Our why 
is because we believe there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. And then we have a how. And when you come to the how, you're kind of thinking about strategy. How do we do that? You're going to hear an awful lot about strategy in the next few weeks as we roll out a strategic vision for this church that will guide us over the next three to five years. But really, our strategy in this area for discipleship can be summarized in a really simple way. Deeper, closer, wider. Say that with me. Deeper, closer, wider. What do we mean deeper? It means we invite everyone to develop a relationship with God, a transforming relationship. It means we gather together like we're here this morning on a regular basis. We worship God, we learn, we find out how to arrange our lives around certain practices, around being immersed in God's word, around generosity and servanthood, around confessing so that we can increasingly, by the power of God, be freed from sin and lead lives that are characterized by love and joy. That's deeper. We want to be deeper in Christ. And then closer means that we're invited into an authentic community together with each other. That's important. For a, for a city with a population topping 7 million in the GTA, people lead remarkably isolated lives. We're invited into community with each other. That's why what we do in small groups are a big deal. Because nobody grows spiritually all by themselves. I want to get to know some people who can encourage me and challenge me and hold me accountable. That's the closer. It's part of why getting linked into these little communities is so critical to being an apprentice to Jesus. It's how Jesus did it. Deeper, closer, and then there's wider. Wider is really important because the church is the one organization that does not exist for its own sake. We exist for the sake of others so that everyone in Mississauga, the GTA, and beyond can flourish. It's why what matters so much isn't just what happens in here on the weekends. It's what happens out there during the week in your homes and in your schools and the workplace. We're constantly asking, how would I do my job? How would I lead my life if Jesus were here leading it in my place? When I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to ask this question. Whether I drive for Uber or I teach a classroom of kids, or I'm serving folks at a restaurant, writing code, I'm an engineer, a volunteer, whatever. How would Jesus do what I'm doing if he were living in my place? And then I ask him to help me in that. It's what makes life matter. And our great hope as we do that is that some of the people in your life, some people you love, your neighbor, your coworker, your mom and dad, or your your children or grandchildren, some of those people will meet Jesus and they'll want to follow him with you. It's our great hope. It's our great dream, isn't it? Because, again, there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Now, here's the thing. If you believe that, you'll become a disciple. If you don't, no, how, no matter how much somebody pesters you, no matter how often you get dragged to church, none of you ever get dragged to church, right? Be honest. Yeah. No matter how often that happens, 
you'll never be a disciple of Jesus because you don't want it. To be a disciple, an apprentice, is to learn how to live. And we're all going to learn how to live from someone. We'll all be an apprentice to something. If it's not to Jesus, we'll be an apprentice of cool or, or devoted to money, success, comfort, security, whatever it is. We all disciple ourselves to something. We do it in different ways. But here we get to be part of a community that gets to experience it at the best. It's just, it's the very best. Now, how does stuff like that happen? What happens because of what Jesus said at the very, very end of the Great Commission? If you still have your Bibles open, I want you to focus in on those words. Remember, he starts, says, I want you to go into the world, make disciples. That's why we're here. That's what we do. It's the greatest invitation ever extended to human beings, an apprenticeship to Jesus that can solve every human problem. The reason these things happen is what Jesus says at the end. You won't do this alone. I will be with you. I am with you always, he said, to the very end of the age. And I think we underestimate this tremendously. The determination of Jesus to be with us, whatever we're facing. We think, well, sometimes I feel him in my life, but sometimes I don't. And when I don't think about him, when I've not been living a good life, when I've not been asking for his help, boy, there's a whole lot of times in my life where I'm just off on my own. Our tendency is to put a caveat on this and say there are certain places, certain times when I feel good, when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm praying, that in those times, Jesus is with me. But Jesus puts no conditions on it. I am with you always, he says. You may be filled with doubts. That's all right. You may be inadequate as an apprentice. That's all right. I am with you always. Or at the beginning of a whole new season. Some of you have been with us for many of them. Some of you are here for the first time this morning. And if that describes you in either case and and you're kind of wondering, how do I get to be a part of what it is that you're talking about? Let me just ask this. Have you made that first decision? And if you're looking for language around it, and, and some of the old-fashioned language just never really felt right to you, let me just give you this. Have you asked to become an apprentice of Jesus? I want to disciple myself at your feet. Of course, there's a lot of, of what that means that none of us really know when we make the decision. And we just figured out along the way, it's kind of like getting married. Daniel, Jade. <laughs> it's kind of like being parents for the first time. You get married and then you figure out what it means to be married. You have children and then you, feel, you figure out what it means to be a parent. You apprentice yourself to Jesus and then you learn what it means to be a disciple. But it begins just with this one basic decision. I will make following Jesus, learning from him how to live my life, seeking to be with him all the time, I will make it the most important thing that I do. Have you done that? 
And then as a church, we want to be part of extending that. So we are going to be launching and we'll be introducing it to you over the next four weeks. A three to five year plan about how to extend our ministries. How is it that we go closer, deeper, wider? How do we invite people to be part of this journey? How do we enhance our footprint right here on Cawther Road in this neighborhood? How do we maximize these facilities, this property that that God has entrusted to us? How do we raise up and equip the servant leaders that will do this together? There was an article in Forbes magazine uh, a couple of years ago talking about the why and how for most people in most companies and saying that for most, the big why is this. I want to be happy. And for companies, it's we want to make people happy. But what if that's not a big enough why? There was a little parable that the writer put at the end of her article, and it went something like this. She said, imagine the world's greatest violin maker. Let's say his name was Franco. He's an Italian master craftsman, violin maker. And he calls to himself 12 apprentices to make violins. Would you say that Franco is happy? She said, well, not necessarily. Because it's really hard work taking on disciples. You'd have to say that he's alternately frustrated and confused and then exalted and in the zone. He's upset and then hopeful. But you couldn't always say he's happy. But what people in town would say is that there is this little community of disciples who live and breathe violins. Because of them and their artistry, and the music that they enable, the world rejoices. There once was a little community of men and women who lived and breathed Jesus. Because of them, their artistry, the world rejoiced. It can happen still. It's why we're here. Would you pray with me? I want to give you each a moment right now as you think about Jesus. Jesus who mastered life and death and resurrection. And if you've never made that decision that says, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to be your follower. You can do that right now. I want to invite you to do that. And if you have, if you're a follower of his and you feel at all discouraged or like you're not doing very well, there's more that you want to do. And just say that to him right now. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus, our friend, our master, the master of the craft of life. We commit ourselves to you as, as his disciples as apprentices, to learn from Him. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.